0: Hey, this is The Moment, I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Brett James. Brett James's work is, uh, if you if you listen to any popular music, particularly country music, but any music, you've heard his songs. Uh, they often end up at the top of the charts. And I'll, I'll give you his, his credits in a second, but the thing I was, you know, if you listen to the show, you know I'm obsessed with songwriters. I think it's incredibly hard. It's a hobby I take very seriously. And the people who can do it the way that Brett has for as long as he has, and and at the top of the field, are fascinating to me. But but even more so, I'm fascinated by the fact that Brett is someone who had a lot of options in his life. He's a very very bright person. Uh, he was a medical student. Uh, that was the path he was on when his when his life. Uh, he was able to take his his life and, and switch gears, and he made a series of decisions that I find incredibly compelling and incredibly inspirational. And I wish I would have known more stories like Brett's when I was trying to figure out the direction of my own life. So he, he's one of Nashville's most successful songwriters. His songs have been cut by, well, first of all, Jesus Take the Wheel, which is one of the most important country songs of the last 10 years. Uh, Brett co-wrote that song. He wrote Kenny Chesney's When the Sun Goes Down. Uh, but he's also been cuts by Luke Bryan, Kelly Clarkson, Florida Georgia Line, Megan Trainor, Nick Jonas, Taylor Swift, Keith Urban, so many more. He wrote the opening theme for the Super Bowl one year. He's a Grammy winner. Uh, he's named ASCAP Songwriter of the Year twice. And he's finally living life as a recording artist in a serious way for the first time since he was a kid. Uh, he's released two EPs. Uh, they're both terrific, and they might surprise you. you you'll recognize the songcraft, but but uh, they might surprise you if you go listen to them because they are not strictly country records, in, in my opinion. We'll talk about that. And... Um, I'm just thrilled to have you here, Brett. Welcome. Well, thanks for
1: having me, Brian. What a thrill to be here.
0: Well, uh, man, I was, you know, I've done a lot of reading about you and I've listened to a couple of uh I- interviews. And one thing that sounds amazing to me is that you were 19 before you picked up a guitar for the first time. And I'm just wondering: like, did you think of yourself as an artistic person, a writer at all, an outsider before you picked up the guitar? Or um or were you just like one of the guys and and didn't know that about yourself?
1: You know, I was, I think I was one of the guys and didn't know that about myself. I don't think I'd, I, you know, I, I certainly didn't sit around writing poetry before I started writing songs, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, I was always a singer. I grew up in church, you know, in yes. Oklahoma. And so, you're, you know, I was one of the guys who was singing in front of church a lot and that kind of stuff. So I, I knew I could sing, but I really... You know, as far as, as writing songs, I, it never even crossed my mind, you know, that, that kind of creativity. And you're right, I got uh, my first guitar when I was 19, and for 80 bucks, I remember my mom bought it at a pawn shop. It was uh, maybe the worst guitar I've ever still ever played, called a Lincoln. <laughs> I've never seen the Lincoln before or since. But... Um, Anyway, yeah, I got this guitar and for me, it was just the natural next step was to, to write a song. So that's kind of how I ended up doing what I do now.
0: What, what, what made you want the guitar? Like how much did you love music or where did music and because a lot of people who become writers and especially with the eye for detail you, you have, they found themselves sort of at times watching people or something or they loved music so much. Was it a, what made you ask your mom for the guitar? Like what where were you? What was going on in your life at that moment?
1: You know, I was, I was, uh, I guess I was in college and um, I must have been young in college. And I, 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 you know, like I said, I'd always been a singer. I played saxophone, jazz saxophone when I was younger and stuff like that, but never really had played an instrument. I could play music for people, you know, and I, I, I really don't know. I just, there was just something in me that wanted, I, I guess I wanted to be a rock star like everybody else, probably would. Right. I, you know?
0: <laughs> And because of the singing, when you would sing outside of church, and w- w- what were you listening to then other than, um, you know, the music that you would sing for church? Like, were you a, a Tom Petty guy, a John Cougar guy? Were you listening to Hank Williams uh, Jr.? Like, where, what, was, what was it that you were putting on for yourself back then?
1: You know, I grew up just listening to the pop and rock radio, just like everybody else. It's interesting because I did grow up in Oklahoma and I grew up even in a small, I spent three or four years in a tiny little town in western Oklahoma. And you would think that country music would be everywhere. And I'm sure that it was, but I don't remember hearing any country music until I, until I, you know, moved to Texas. I went to Texas college in Texas. And, but you know, at that time, uh, like I said, I, that Lincoln guitar, I learned to play because I, uh, by buying the, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp Scarecrow songbook. And, and I knew that, I knew that album so well. Me too. By but, you know, the way, I knew Me I did. Like, yeah. I was one of, still one of my, one of my all time favorite albums. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I knew those songs so well, and they were all relatively simple. So that's how I learned to play guitar was was uh, sitting there cording out John Cougar songs. Ah,
0: uh, man, I I remember staring at that at that record, and um, so I'm, I think I'm a couple years. I'm 54. Are you 51 or 52, 52 or something? 52, yeah, 52. Yeah. So I I remember staring at that album, uh, you know, the vinyl album, and it it had some lyrics by a guy named George C. Green, and I I remember going. Oh, this some guy wrote words along with. I remember being totally fascinated by like, what is that? How does that work? Because I too wasn't a writer yet. You know, and I was like, oh, is that a kind of writing that my dad worked with songwriters? But I never saw someone who was just like a lyricist. And I, I listened to yeah. that album
1: over and over again. That's so, an amazing album still.
0: And so then you started writing quickly thereafter. Were you like, um, you were also studying super hard, right? Uh, what what were you like in in college? Uh, when you started playing did you start to think like oh this is drawing me in i'm spending more time on this or or were you still balancing your your time out it took it, it took so. a
1: while you know in college i was i was playing some alternative rock bands and so i was in texas so we played austin and we played frat right. and that kind of stuff um but it wasn't until uh, actually I, I i got out of undergrad and into medical school before i really started taking songwriting seriously <laughs> Uh, yeah, random story, right? So like, I was I was a freshman in med school, and I, I took a date to see a guy named Steve Warner. And of course, this is the, like the early 90s, so country music's blowing up, and I've been living in Texas, and I've become a fan of this guy, Steve Warner, who's still just an amazing guitarist and singer-songwriter. And uh, I remember going to his show and standing there, just watching him do his thing as a medical student, and I knew – now he was a genius guitar player and I knew I'd never play guitar like that but it was like a little light switch I think everybody has these light switch moments and for me it was like a light switch went off in my head and I thought to myself I'll never play guitar like that but I think I can do the rest I think I can write and sing and literally that night I went home and started as my hobby you know when I wasn't in school just started you know trying to write some country songs and uh that's how that's how that's when I first started taking it seriously. That's, that's for me that was kind of the light To
0: to um and then and then you decided to take it seriously, right? That's the part of this that like a lot of people think, oh, I can chase my dream, but they forget the part where you have to apply like an incredible amount of rigor. To it. <laughs>
1: that, that is something we see a lot in, in both of our businesses. Yeah, nobody's <laughs> yeah. got the dream and very few people have a follow through, right? Yeah. So you decided not just
0: that you were going to sort of screw around and write songs. You were going to try to write good songs, right? You were going to try to work at it.
1: Yeah, I, I I I really was, and so what I ended up doing was I you know I I'd written probably ten songs and made a little money made a little summer job money after my freshman sophomore year of medical school, and you know went to the only recording studio I think there was in Oklahoma City, and 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 told them I wanted to record my songs, you know, and so those ended up being my first demos, uh, those five songs on a little cassette tape, and uh, that's that's kind of how that was really what. Yes what got me started, you know? Uh,
0: yeah. I, I want to get to that story. You go to Nashville, but I want to ask you just a couple things first, because so many people uh, get to the kind of crossroads yeah. and you got there a couple times where, you know, you had to decide one thing or a- another, mm-hmm. but when, in order to do really well, like I was, I was talking to a kid today um, and he's a, a, a senior and he wants to go to med school and he was taking, he was talking about his organic chemistry and, and, and he was like, talking about, you know, the hard sciences, like you have to be so devoted to get into medical school. Did you, and and, and in order to do that, like, you know, you have to say no to so many things that other people are doing because those classes are so hard. Like, did you have to convince yourself medicine was your calling? I mean, most people who become, go to med school, they've had to convince the med school and all their professors. It it feels like you're almost a kind of self-hypnosis or were you never that, Committed to it? Were you able to picture that as a life for yourself?
1: You know, I, I yeah, absolutely. Uh, and re- from high school on, I never really saw myself doing anything else. Just my dad was a doc, my granddad right. was a doc, so I had it in the family. And my dad loved being a doctor; he just liked taking care of people. And so did my grandfather. And so he had such a passion for it. And of course, if you grow up around it, you see how much. I mean, he he worked way harder than I would ever want to work. But uh, you know, he just had such a passion for it, and I and I was and I was interested in it. And I think that's what. For me, like you mentioned organic chemistry, there's, I have no love for organic chemistry (laughs) at all. (laughs) That's just, that's, that's just, you just learn that because you got to learn it, you know? But once, once I actually got into med school and started studying things about the human body and all that kind of science, I find, I still find that fascinating. So, you know, to me, as long as you're interested in it, it, uh, it's great, but it is definitely a, a a bit of a passion and it has to be a calling because once you're, once you're in, man, you are fully in med school is not, not for the faint of heart for sure.
0: Right. Yeah. And when you started, pl- so when you start playing your songs, you do those demos. I, I want to get to the first trip to Nashville, but were you getting positive reactions from people? Like if someone from your med school would walk into your room and you'd play them a song were people looking at you like, Hey man, you're, you're good at th- Like you could do this. Like, were you getting positive a- affirmation back?
1: Not really. I mean, quite honestly, when I first started doing it, I mean, not from yeah. anyone but my parents, probably, and you know, I don't think I played them for anyone else, you know. And so it wasn't like I was, you know, trying to go around and play bars or play writers nights or anything. I was just doing it on my own, and yeah, I guess you know, and that's probably what it was. My my dad probably said that's a pretty good song or something. That was probably my only encouragement going in. So you, why do you think you didn't play it for people? Were you, it, it felt like you wanted it to be, this is valuable.
0: Because I always tell people, if you want to kill your dream, then then go tell everyone what you're trying to do at Thanksgiving, you know. Um, <laughs> because they'll tell you all the reasons it'll never happen. Yeah. So y- you you think that's part of why you weren't kind of out about it loudly to, to the people in, in your life other than your parents?
1: Probably so. And I, I've always, I've never been one of those guys that just, Walks into a, a house, sees a guitar, and says, "Hey, let me play you something." <laughs> you know, some yeah. some people have that, and I respect it, and I love that about them. But I've just never been that guy. You know, even now, you know, you know, if there's, you know, if, if people are hanging around a campfire playing songs at a party, it's I'm usually not one of them. I'm one the you know I'm standing in the back. You know, that's just just my style, I guess. So that's I was just amazing. never one that was like, "Hey, hey, listen to what I did today." I never was that guy. Um, I just kind of wanted to take it from, you know, go different angles with that, I guess.
0: So you record these demos, these five songs, and you had, is that when you went to that, on that trip to Nashville?
1: It is, yeah. I, I, my my big music, my big connection to the music industry was a, a very famous person. I'm kidding. Uh, her, She was a dear friend of mine, and, and she ended, actually ended up doing very well in the music business later. But at this point, she was just a friend of mine from college. Who was working as an intern in college radio promotion in ann arbor michigan so that was my connection to the music yes the, the hotbed of the, hotbed yeah, of the entertainment where, every, where everybody goes you know and, and of course yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting country demos in oklahoma city so I, I you know i sent her the cassette tape is what i did and she liked it and her boss liked it and her boss was a lady named reen nally who had Uh, done a lot, who had an amazing career with Atlantic Records in New York City, but lived in Ann Arbor. So she was kind of back there just living life. And she heard my demos. It's, of course, the early 90s. So everybody's looking for the next Garth Brooks. It's, you know, country music's exploding. Thought I was pretty good. And she said, you know, she kind of called me, wanted to manage me. And that's and and I said and she was like, when can I take you? You know, when can we get you to Nashville? And I said, well, I'm in med school, but I've got spring break coming up. So it was right. spring break of my sophomore year that I ended up meeting her in Nashville for the first time.
0: Was that a, a super exciting phone call for you or did you stay calm about it?
1: No, I was I was thrilled. You know, I, I think, think I mean, great, yeah. that, that's just super exciting just to, just to have anybody who's got some some cred tell you that your stuff might be good, you know, is, is pretty. Oh, it's important. a huge, big deal.
0: Yes. I agree. I remember the first time anyone said our first script was good. Whatever. Yeah. Right. Um,
1: it's just, wow. Somebody thinks I'm, I can, I'm decent other than me. you know? Yeah.
0: Cause there's so many rejections. And so, and, and, um, that we all have to deal with along the way. But so, so you go to, you go to Nashville and you've got a meeting quick, right? With somebody.
1: Yeah, you know, she she had set up a couple of record labels to meet with. I remember one was RCA, and and we went. Those we had like two record label meetings. We met with both of them. And who were her friends, and they kind of patted me on the head, and you know, sent me sent me packing. You know, nice to meet you kind of thing. And and it's fun looking back at this story because this is the way Nashville sort of used to work. You know, she. She had another friend who was just a buddy, an old friend, and she's, you know, we're just kind of making the rounds. And yes. So we go to this former AR guy named Cliff Audrich, and he I play for him, you know, and he's sitting there and he's like, you know, Tim Dubois, the head of Aristotle, I think, would like this, you know. He's mm. good. So he literally picks up the phone. He's like, Tim, I got a guy in my office pretty good. And Tim's like, bring him over. So oh, I, that's it, it, it's amazing. It sounds like right out of walk hard,
0: actually. You know what I mean? Straight <laughs> we're, out of that. Literally, literally, yeah.
1: literally straight out of that. He picks yeah. up the phone. You know, Tim's like, bring him over. Next thing you know, we're sitting in the President Verst's of office. You know, we walk across we walk down the street.
0: Yeah. And uh, Tim And was, you're carrying your wait, I want to go slow, because you're carrying your guitar. Is that what you're playing or are you playing the cassette?
1: No, I'm carrying my guitar. I, I'm sure we had the cassette with us too, but I'm carrying my guitar, got my cowboy hat on, got the whole nine, you know, yeah. looking like looking like a wannabe country star. Yes. And uh, you know, we walk into his office and and played him a couple songs, and Tim was like, Man, he looked at me and said, Literally, he always called everyone Mr. Mr. He uh, goes. I never tell anybody this, but if you move here, I'll give you a record deal, just like that. That was my third that's day. So unbelievable. My third day in Nashville. Yeah, and so.
0: Okay, you know, so that's, that's such a secret, you know. Well, that's such a big deal, and I know what happened next, and I can't wait for the, everyone to hear it. But I, I, I don't know if you know this part, but I, before I wrote my first script with Dave, my partner, yeah. I was an AR person for nine years. That's what I did for my job.
1: I did know that. It's crazy. So you know what and, that like? So <laughs> you've you so, had a lot of guys. A lot of guys on back at cinema. Uh, uh,
0: right. I mean, the the odds of somebody coming into your office, playing their guitar for you, and you saying without a second meeting, without seeing them in a, a club, without um, taking their music and going and listening to the cassette a hundred times. It's, it. I think one time maybe in my whole nine years of doing it, did I ever do, it yeah. It does not happen. And when you say that to somebody, you know you're changing their entire life's direction. Yeah. Um. So it's a very big deal, right? Because they might not make it, they might make it. Uh, <laughs> It's a momentous thing to say. Also, you're putting, that guy was putting his whole, even if he was the president of the label, he knows he's committing all sorts of people to do all sorts of work on your behalf with those words. Exactly. But you did something really weird, dude. So explain what you did when he
1: said that to you. You didn't say, great, let's sign. I'm moving tomorrow.
0: Explain what you did.
1: Well, I I said, well, I'm in med school. I need to think about this, you know. And so I went back to Oklahoma and I ended up finishing that year of med school, sophomore year, took my, what you you say, board exams after your sophomore year too. So that takes another month. And then the day after I took my sophomore board exams, I had told the med school I was taking a year leave of absence. So to go, you know, see if I could make it in country music, and and you know, very naively thinking I would know anything in a year about whether I was going to make it or not, you know. It's, right, yeah, you That's funny. It's a ten-year yeah. ten town, you know. It's, it's cool yes, it works. And uh, so I told them I was taking a year off, and then I, you know, threw my guitar in and in a, in a sack of clothes and on my nineteen eighty-two Dots and maximum and drove to Nashville, and. I did not call that president of the label, Tim Dubois was his name. I didn't call him for another nine months. You know, I, I mean, don't
0: understand. That's the part that I cannot understand. You got to explain it to us. Well,
1: I, I think, and, and looking back, I really don't understand why either. I, you know, I did have this, I only had one real contact, you know, and he was the guy, but sort of instinctively I knew I wasn't ready. I just knew I was not ready to have a record deal. I knew I wasn't good enough. I hadn't written enough songs. I hadn't learned the ropes at all, you know? And so I waited tables and and, uh, you know, and I waited tables long enough to at least get land a small publishing deal with with the publishing company so that I could get paid to write songs and maybe be a, an artist someday. And uh, so I did that. And then, you know, nine months later, I, 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 I after I had some music I was proud of. And thought thought was worthy. Um, I called him again and said, "Hey, you know, it's been a year since i would met, met with him. Unreal. And I was like, "I know it's been a year, and you might not even remember me, but about a year ago, you said if you move here, you'd give me a deal. Any chance we could have another meeting?" And uh, he's he's an amazing guy. We had another meeting, and and then I went through that process. I played, you know, I showcased for the label and did all that. Yes, stuff and got. But,
0: Brett, that that year that you were in in Nashville, um, grinding to become in your mind good enough to sort of fulfill what he saw in you were you check you weren't checking in with him because you say you just called him kind of out of the blue a year later did you walk in in your head did you have a record deal in your back pocket like because you signed a small publishing deal but if they knew you had a record deal your publishing deal would have been a bigger publishing deal so how did you think about were you thinking 10 years ahead what what do you think was like going through your head in that you made it harder for yourself in a way
1: that's a great question. I think I was just trying to learn the craft. You know, I didn't know my way around town yet. You know, and right. and I think I was just trying to fall in, kind of, and and just sort of learn the game a little bit and maybe get better and get some. You know, I think for me at that point it was literally just more about today's song. You know, if I could write something today that felt to me like something could be on the radio, um, more more than it was. I'm thinking about big career plans. I was really more just waking up and. And trying to trying to write something somebody cared about, you know. It's, that's, yeah, trying
0: to write an undeniable... You were trying to write. So this makes a lot of sense to me. This part, uh, I often tell people that if you, it, the thing you can control is the work that you produce. It's kind of the only thing you can control in the think- whole entertainment business right is I've said
1: that a million times myself my friend yeah exactly yeah you, you it's the, the work you do and everything else is sort of up to God you know
0: yeah you can't you just all you can do is try to make the the work undeniable and if you can truly create you know five undeniable songs or write an undeniable screenplay or an undeniable pilot for a thing you can change your destiny in a way yeah. and so you you sort of knew you were gonna grind it how did you just from a Practical standpoint: How did you go about like meeting people to co-write with, and and like what was that like? You land and and you get yourself a waiting job. Do you go play open mics at the Bluebird? Like what what happened as you were bouncing around like a pool ball on a table where you got to (laughs) meet people?
1: That's what you do. You know, you go to parties and you 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 meet kids your own age. And you know, I had a couple of that that friend Deb, for instance, uh, that I was telling you had been my contact in Ann Arbor, had moved to Nashville, you Get a circle of friends, and that circle of friends had music business people in them, and. And then I'm, I, I ran around, and just like everybody else, and played. There used to be – I mean, there still are, I guess. But, there, you know, there used to be a lot of open mics in Nashville besides the Bluebird, you know. And the Bluebird was the the, the, the mecca of open mics. You could, yes. You almost couldn't get in there, you know. So, you, you know, there'd be a Tuesday night open mic. You show up, sign up at 6.30 – you're going to get to play your two songs at 11 for nobody. Right. You know, so I, and, I, I did a lot of those, you know, and just. And then
0: you're meeting when you're there, though, are you talking to the other men and women with guitars and like sort of hanging out or
1: are yeah, you. You are. You kind of you're kind of you're kind of learning, seeing, you know, and that's the truth of the matter is most of those situations most people in those situations aren't very good. You know, yep, we all know that of where you are to learn. But um, you know, there always there's usually a diamond in the rough, or somebody played a great song. and You talk, you, you know, you kind of just network a little
0: bit. And then do you say like, hey, let's do a co? Like, how do the co-writes happen at the beginning before you have the publishing deal? How do the co-writes happen?
1: You know, I really didn't start co-writing until even after I put my first album out. My first album, right. I wrote, I think I wrote ten of the eleven songs by myself, which doesn't really happen much anymore. You know, not but, a lot not a lot. I didn't really start co-writing for for two or three more years into into my match.
0: So you were just working so when you say the song of the day, you were it reminds me of that I'm sure you've seen that Eagles documentary the way Jackson Brown would get they would describe Jackson Brown getting yeah. up in the morning and writing. Yeah. So that's what
1: that's what you were doing. You were treating that like a job? Yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. I am you know, sitting in my little apartment with a four track cassette recorder and, you know, trying to come up with some <laughs> magic or <of> something. <laughs> yeah, that's all I was doing.
0: And were you were you listening to the radio a lot? Were you buying records? Were you obsessed with what was were you doing like sort of because you said you weren't really into country music till college? Did you go back and then learn about Merle and and Waylon and Willie? Like, how did you become because I know just from when I meet people in in your line of work and and, you know, I've been lucky enough to I've been writing songs with people down there some and Mm -hmm. Everybody, you got to know all that music in a way. Everyone talks about it. So how did you start like learning about that stuff? Or did you not? Were you just listening to the current stuff?
1: No, I was listening to all of it. You know, I think there is a, a, over time, it just sort of seeps into you if you live here long enough. And you you kind of just somehow, you know, and I wouldn't, there's a lot of guys that know a lot more, you know, classic country than I do. But somehow you just learn (laughs) about Merle and about Hank and about, you know, all the greats. And you know, you know, their songs, you know, you know what they brought to this town over right? The period of a lot of years. So somehow it just kind of seeps into you. But you do have to be here a long time for that. And that's what I that's interesting, because, you know, I, I'll, I'll write with a lot of newcomers to Nashville. I, I call them a lot of L.A. writers, a lot of London writers that want to write country. And, you know, it helps to have somebody kind of in, that's in our world, that's in, been in country for a long time to go, you know what? We can't quite say that because they said it too many. It's been said too many times or, yes. you know, that title has been written way too many times or whatever it is. It's kind of helped, you know, you kind of end up being the the, uh, the the country police a little bit.
0: Yeah, so that's funny. That. You're
1: like the, well, you're like the institutional knowledge of the town in a way. Yeah, and it's and that's fine. It's fine for them not to have that, by the way, but it does help to have somebody, at least one person in the room that kind of knows that kind of. Thing.
0: Yeah, so you don't write a song called "Cheat and Heart." Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's you know, suddenly or whatever the thing is. Exactly. So you, so you're you're steeped in it because you're there. You're just in in town and you're and you're writing. Yeah. And you call the guy up and and. Are you? Uh, did you call any other labels? Did your publisher try to get you in front of labels, or was? Did in your mind, I'm going to call the Arista guy when I'm ready. Well, Arista
1: was the best. I mean, they were. Right. They, the the deal he offered me was the deal that I you know I learned this after i after I'd been here for a while was that it was the deal every, uh, you know everybody had been wanting for five years for this guy you know because he he at that time Arista was they'd only signed six artists and they were all gold or better and the first two were Alan Jackson and Brooks right. and Doug, you know and oh, they kind of right. had the golden touch. Or yeah, Tim I mean, didn't the golden well. touch at the time. I was I was actually one of their first huge failures. And that I was, was
0: gonna say you were one of the only flops. Yeah, in the beginning.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, so um, uh, anyway, so- yeah, that we didn't go anywhere else. Just to Tim, and uh, and it worked out. You know, I mean, it didn't work. It didn't work out for my my artist career, but it sure was a great great time. And, and
0: at the time, you were not thinking to yourself because it's a great thing, also I think inspiring thing, which is. You've been able to make your living at a something people dream about, but it actually wasn't your specific dream, which was to be an artist at first. And yet you obviously ended up living a life everybody would, would want to live if they could, any creative person. So you, you, you go make your first album. And were you comfortable making that album? Was it the way you'd wanted to do it? Did it, did it feel like you were doing the right
1: thing? It did. You know, I was a 23, 24 year old kid. So I was just kind of trusting a lot of people around me. You know, I can't say I didn't like the record because, like I said, I wrote all of it by myself. So it's not like I could blame it on the the writing. Um, You know, I had a great team of producers Steve Bogart, Mike Klute, and, you know, I had Tim Dubois overseeing the whole thing. And it was, it seemed like a dream situation. We just didn't, for whatever reason, we just didn't have hits, you know. And
0: and and what did? How did you? So you're not someone who had, had a lot of failure, right? You you. I mean, med school. I I I imagine people listening understand just what a victory it is to get into med school and survive the first year of med school and pass your boards, right? That already puts you into the 99th percentile of people who want to live a life, right? But and then you come to Nashville and you immediately get a record deal, and in fact, it's on your own terms. You wait. So you think you're good enough and everything is swimming in the right direction. Right. <laughs> and suddenly you have um, uh, what would be considered a failure of sorts and that the record didn't take off. And what? Uh, yeah. How did you process? What happened to you emotionally during that time? How would you pick yourself back up, man?
1: It's really challenging. I mean, that was a, a really hard thing. Um, You know, I was on Arista from 93 to 97 or '8. Yes. I guess. You know, you and you, I made a first at record. You know, it's in Walmart for like a hot minute. You know, and then it's not. Yes. And what's interesting oh. about what, about you know failing in the music business or whatever is it's sort of public failure. Like, yes, I, I know yes. You know, it's it's like yeah, that was that guy.
0: Oh, it didn't work. Well, also everyone in your home, also like it is public. I mean, I've had movies that bombed, man, and and like it's funny the successes people know about, but the failures you hear from them.
1: You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, exactly. And at the end of that tenure, at the end of that time period, after I've been trying for a long time and then got dropped from Arrested Records, you know, in 98 or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there was a, you know, I still, I remember it was published by EMI and I would just be sort of embarrassed to walk in, you know, and to walk in the office. I was sort of that, at this point, I'm, you know, I don't know, 28 years old or something. And I just totally felt like a washed up sort of has been who was hanging around trying to do something. I didn't even know what. So it was, it was, it was not fun. I mean, failing publicly is not fun. Your friends are like, what happened to your record, man?
0: Uh, Oh, that's an uncomfortable conversation. The people back home and all that stuff. Right. So it, so
1: it hurt. It hurt actually. It does. It stings a little bit.
0: Yeah. And at that time, are you writing songs uh, every day also started you're in the co-writing routine. I know you had a partner that you wrote a lot with. Mm-hmm. So are you is that the time that you're really grinding on the songwriting
1: in in Nashville? It was. That's when I started that. yeah I started I kind of made the shift gradually in uh, over that in the late 90's after I've, I've, I've lost a record deal, but I still got a publishing deal. so I might as well try to write for other artists you know that was kind of what there was to do, what was in front of me Yes. um, So yeah, I started doing that, you know, in, in the, in the late nineties and with, with no success. And that's why I ended up, I think going back to school. But
0: but did you, did you wonder, I've had this happen to me where something I thought was going to work out didn't. And, and at times it can make you wonder if you've like lost your North star, like the thing you thought you were sure of in a way, uh, I know what's good or, you know, my own standards are what's going to sort of allow me to make creative decisions. And then in in failure, sometimes it takes a minute for me to recalibrate and go, well, wait, okay, that didn't work. But that that doesn't mean that I've lost the plot completely. Like I can still find my way through this. Was that hard for you to, you know, you had years of not writing hits when you thought you knew how to write a hit. What kept you going at it, do you think?
1: That's a great question too. Uh, You know, i I think just the fact that at that point I didn't have anything else to do, Just <laughs> was somebody was dumb enough to pay me to do it, so I was trying, you know, and that's all, That's about it. And I knew that I, I had, I knew that I hadn't cracked the code because I was around some people that had kind of cracked the code. That yes, was, you know, everything they were writing was working, you know. and they're 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 killing it, and I'm kind of not. I'm not sure why not. And you're kind of just trying to put the pieces together until some magic happens.
0: You mean you knew like you? That's a fascinating. Okay, that's really um. That's a great sort of distinction that you didn't just get bummed about it. You actually were like, hold on, there must be something in these songs that isn't exactly, even though they're good and everyone likes them and the melodies are good and I'm smart and I can write good lyrics, you knew or you were willing to accept that it was possible that you hadn't actually solved what it means to write a song that's going to break through.
1: Yeah. I knew for whatever reason that I, I at that time for what was happening yes. with music at that moment I was kind of not not getting it, you know. As hard oh, as I was trying, some yes. of, like, they could be hits for people, but for whatever reason they're not getting recorded. All that stuff, and so right. kind of just trying to you, you you take take more swings and hope you hit something is all I was trying.
0: And to. then did you learn to not like? Did you um, l- like uh, you'd write a song? I imagine then you get to the place in the beginning, you're like, that's a hit. And then by the middle of that, you must be so just sort of phlegmatic about it. Like, well, that's another song. I, I like it. I have no idea if anyone else is going to like it.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of writers that are doing that today in Nashville, quite honestly. There's writers that are, you know, have publishing deals that are, you know, writing what they think are hits every day and they're not they're not getting recorded either. And, it, and like we talked about, all you can control is your work. If the work is great, but still sometimes, you know, all the pieces don't align. And so, you know, maybe they're just waiting for their chance. And we always tell people in Nashville, you know, you know, you have, write a lot of hits so that once one does break through, when everybody, all the A&R guys yes, songs, you've got 10 to follow it up with. And you've seen, I mean, you know that. No, that's
0: consistent with, but by the way, that is consistently true with, I mean, if I look at Brandy Clark and I look at Shane McAnally and I look at you, that's three people who couldn't get a song cut. Um, and then when it finally happened, you know, Shane had seven years and no one cut his songs. Yeah, sure. Um, and then when it finally happens, you know, everyone's like, oh, that, that person was great. Um, all, I, I, all along, yeah. you know? Uh, so, but you left also, right? So this is, I, I also love this. So you, but you finally did decide it's not responsible or something as you got to be near 30. Like what happened that made you go back to med school?
1: You know, I, uh, what happened was I literally was, you know, all of a sudden I'm 30 years old. I've, I've lost my record deal. My publishing deal had been cut by, you know, two thirds, you know, so I'm, I'm now making a lot less money into the late 90s. Nashville's, you know, the early 90s, were, Nashville was a boom town. The late 90s, pop took over, Britney Spears and NSYNC. And all of a sudden we went in Nashville from about 1,200 full-time songwriters to about 250 in a matter of about two years. Huh. And so the whole town was kind of nosediving and I was certainly, you know, you know, head underwater. And and I had a little kind of, I don't know if you call it epiphany or a panic attack. I'm not sure which, <laughs> I, which I had, but I was I was in Walmart one day. I had, I had two babies, two baby boys that were like one and two. Oh, and man. I'm looking at a pair of shoes in, uh, not Walmart, Target, I guess, looking at a pair of shoes thinking those are really cute kids' shoes. And I'd love to buy them for my son, but I can't afford them. And I'm not going to live like this. I've got to figure something out, you know? And so, what all I'd ever done was go to med school and and be in Nashville, right? So these are—it's not like I can just go get a desk job, apply it, you know, at the insurance company because I don't have any skills for that. So I didn't know what else to do. I snail mailed a letter back to the the dean of the medical school and said, "I know I've been out. You're only supposed to get a year off. I've been out for seven. But is there any way you'll let me back in?" And she snail mailed me back and said, "Yeah, you can come back. You made good grades, but you're going to have to repeat your sophomore year because Mm. you've been out so long." And you know what? I was fine with that. I was just like, wow, this is a this is I know I have a direction. I know that it's going to I'm going to be in a ton of debt by the time I finish and get to be a doctor. But at some point, I'm going to have a job and my kids will be fed. And so my dream kind of turned from, you know, like a lot of people, a lot of people hang on to their And, you know, this, too, from being in the entertainment business forever, that you know, some people just hang on to the dream a little too long. You know, there's, there's, there's a reality that has to hit you, especially if you have kids to feed. And for me, that reality was like, okay, I've been here for seven years. I gave it my best shot. I worked really hard. You know, it's, it's, I'm not, it's not my fault. It's not the town's fault. It just didn't work for whatever reason. It's not meant to be. So I'll, I'll go, you know, find another job. And so that's what I was doing. I went back to school. Well, the, the interesting part, you know, the, 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 Weird thing about my story is that it was when I went back that, you know, I I started back to med school on September 1st and Faith Hill cut one of my songs on the 4th and, you know, Got thirty three cuts in the next nine months while I was going to med school. And
0: also, right, I wanted to, we gotta we gotta really understand that. And some yeah. of those were the songs you had written the year before with your partner, right,
1: or with other people. Actually, and, most of them when we wrote while I was in med school, my partner Troy Burgess, who and he, you know, I had two interesting conversations to go back to med school. One was with the publisher that had just signed me, a guy named Mark Mark Bright. I was his only writer. Carrie Underwood's producer, most people know him as, and I took him to breakfast. You know, and I said, I know you just signed me. I'm your only writer. Um, but I got kids to feed, man, and, and I got to make sure they're fed. So I'm going to go back to medical school in Oklahoma. And Mark, you know, he looked at me, said, man, I totally get it. I got kids, too. And uh, but you have a contract, you know, for a year. Just write songs out there and let's see what happens, you know. And so that was one conversation. The other one was with a guy that I just started, you know, really gelling with as a co-writer, one of my dear friends named Troy Burgess. And uh, I told Troy, who was at the time like 24 year old kid, you know, and I said, Troy, I know we're starting to get a little bit of heat on our songs. I hate it, but I'm going back to med school. And Troy's like, no worries, man, I'll just fly out there and we'll do it up there. So he would fly to Oklahoma once a month for stay for a week with me and my parents house. And we'd write, you know, I go to med school in the morning. We write songs all night. I
0: mean, that's amazing. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah I, by the way, I don't think it was an epiphany. I
0: think it was like a false prophecy that you had to quit because, like, an epiphany, I think, has um, is, tr- is true. Is true, and it turned out you didn't need to give it up. But I guess you needed to go there to get out of that grind of Nashville or something. I right? really or did.
1: I really did. Take
0: the pr- well. It's interesting, right? It took the pressure off because what you said about people hanging on too long. I think, and. Uh, I know that when I knew I had to start writing, I didn't quit my day job because I felt if I quit my day job, I would put so much pressure on myself to support my family. And I too, I had a young, I had a young child, I mean, I had a young child then. And yeah. I was like, I know I have to live this life. I have to try to write so that I'm the kind of dad that I want to be, meaning I'll tell my kids they can chase their dreams. Right. But I also don't want to quit my job and put everything in that bucket because what if I can't, then I'm really irresponsible And and, So I I did both. So maybe you needed to be put yourself in that place to to be able to be free enough to write
1: the songs without pressure. That's exactly right. I mean, and for me, that was creatively, that was like a a super breakthrough that first pressure was off. I was like, okay, I can take a deep breath. I got, I'm going to, I'm going to have a day job so my kids can get fed. But it was also after being in Nashville and trying to kind of fit the square into the round peg for so long, thinking I had to kind of fit this thing. All of a sudden I find myself, you know, going to school every day, a thousand miles from town. And and in my head, I was about as far away from the music business as I could be. And so all of a sudden it just freed me, and in this case, me and Troy a lot, up to just write what we thought was cool. You know, we weren't trying to chase some record that somebody was making or some, you know, A and R guy had said, Look, we're looking for this. It was none of that. It was just like, let's just write cool stuff, you know. And and, and that was really freeing as well. And as soon as we started writing cool stuff, people other people thought it was cool, too. And that's kind of what took off for us.
0: Well, yeah. What was it like? When, so was Faith the first cut or was the Kenny Chesney cut for it? What was the very first cut?
1: The very first cut, I, I had two cuts in Nashville before I went back to med school. Um, neither one of them, uh, the biggest one was a, a Kenny Chesney song, a song called Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. Kiss Me. That uh, never, never was a single or anything. But then... You know, when I went back, like I said, I started on September 1st, and then got the phone call that Faith Hill was cutting one of our songs on the 4th, and then it just kind of snowballed. You know, kind of like we were talking about earlier. All of a sudden, oh wow, this this is pretty cool. What else is he? What else does this kid got? You know, and so all of a sudden, everybody wanted everything we were writing or everything I was writing. And when did When the Sun Goes Down happen? When the Sun Goes Down happened actually later, oddly. When the Sun Goes Down happened because the other thing that happened that year, of course, I've been you know spending 3 years kind of embarrassed to walk into a publishing company got my head down all that yes time. i go back to school people start cutting my songs and big shots start hearing my demos and so dan huff who's the biggest yes, picture in nashville of course He's hearing my demos, and he calls one day. I'd been back in med school. Like I said, I'd spent three years with nothing, couldn't get. And you're
0: studying, and you're really doing it. By the way, you're back in med school, and and you are actually doing the med school part while you're writing these songs, like in earnest. Um, you're you're really trying at med school. Oh
1: yeah, I, I was doing the whole thing. You know, making-
0: Wait, did your other did the other kids at med school now? You're this old dude in class, right? They're twenty four. Yeah. You're thirty. Exactly. And do you tell them, do they know, hey, I'm a successful, you know,
1: because even like, do they know, oh, this guy's had albums out? Like, do they know the story? Not really. Not really. And it was kind of, you know, I, that, that it's interesting that that, that group of kids who were all 24, I really didn't get to know that well. What it's, right. it's really funny is that we're having this conversation right now, Brian, because tonight mm-hmm. I'll get on zoom at 7:30. I got a call from my old module from the first time I went to med school Right, and we're having a 30 year reunion tonight. Is oh, that wow. That's amazing. And they were kind enough to call me and include me. Cause you know, I obviously I didn't finish with them, but it's, it's a, it's a funny thing. And do they, do you, are you in touch with any of those people? I haven't been, My, you know, I've got a couple friends that aren't a part of this call that I've, I've kept in touch with. But other than that, these people I literally have not laid eyes on since 19.
0: Oh, that's going to be so fun. Oh, that's amazingly cool. Yeah. So so, so wait, so Dan Huff calls. So you're there. You're just a regular student in med school. Yeah. And this whole thing is kind of mind-blowing, dude. As a storyteller, I just love it so much. So you're at med school and uh, Dan Huff calls. And, and what's he say?
1: Well, I mean, like I said, I hadn't been able to get arrested in Nashville for three years prior to going to med school. All of a sudden, my stomp start getting recorded. And then Dan called. It's November. I've only been in med school, back in med school for three months. He's like, Brett, your demos are great. We got to make a record. You know, we got to, we got going on. So I signed. It's a long story, but I, I said, well, Dan, I'm in med school. And he's like, fine, we can still make a record. And so I re signed with Arista Records again, this time under Joe Galante in the year 2000. Right. All back to When the Sun Goes Down. I wrote When the Sun Goes Down by myself, but I put it on that album. And of course, that album then, like, never, you know, I put, one single hit radio, and the day it lost its bullet, I lost my record deal again.
0: <laughs> fantastic.
1: But that's that said. I, Joe Galani called me, and said, "Okay, I'm dropping you from the label, but I want when the sun goes down for Kenny Chesney." Like you got it. So that's right. Not, well, that's a that's a positive thing.
0: And and uh, when did you get to know at that point? Well, let's do this. So you, you get all these songs cut that year of med school, and and talk to me about the. You realize okay i'm leaving i'm I'm gonna be a songwriter now i've got songs on the radio they're cutting my songs i'm gonna make a lot of money doing this what was the conversation with the dean like when you said you wanted to leave medical school
1: fortunately here's what here's what happened so you're right she pulled all these strings to get me back in and then i literally finished that year took the exams again took my finals and already knowing that i was going to quit right i don't know why i just decided i was going to go ahead and take the exams Take the finals, and then I, I go back into her office, <laughs> and I, I, I had a sheet of paper that had all thirty-three of those songs that had been recorded, you know, and a couple, then I mean, three or four of them have been on the radio already, and uh, and so I said, "Look, I know you pulled all these strings to get me back in," but I, and I slid the paper across her desk, and I said, "But here's what's going on with my with my music career," and she looked, and she goes, "Oh, I love that song. I love oh, that song." Great. too. I had no idea. She turns out she's a big country fan. Oh, that's hilarious. So she, she looks up at me. She goes, well, you have to go do this. And I said, yeah, I think I do. She goes, but you can't ever come back. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, that's that. You got to no. Deal. You burned this bridge twice. You're out. But anyway, that was that was the conversation. So you did, and then obviously it
0: must have been such a relief when she was cool about it. That must have been great for you because I can feel how uncomfortable it would be in a way to have to go do that it was uh, when someone's bent over backwards yeah. uh, for you in that in that way. When, when they're cutting your songs in the beginning, just people are curious about that, and I actually never asked, um, I didn't ask Shane this question or anyone else. Uh, it's different now that you're a famous person, you know, in, in in Nashville. But back then, like when Faith would cut your song or the first time Kenny Chesney did, do you have any involvement in that? Do they ever call you and say, hey, man, I'm cutting your song or hey, swing by the studio for the mix or... Do you just find out kind of by a call from your publisher? I mean, what, how does that part of it
1: work? You literally, I mean, at that point, especially, you know, now I'm friends with some of those people. So yes, yeah, call me. But uh, no, back then it was literally, I'm, I'm sitting in the library of med school and I, you know, my little flip phone would buzz. And I remember I'd step out, you know, step outside the library and, you know, the Kelly King, my song plug, would be on the line. She'd be like, Brett, you know, Tim McGraw just cut Telluride or whatever song. and I right. You know, I just like, you know, do my little happy dance and go back to studying pathology. But that's, you know, yeah, you didn't get, there's no real contact for, you know, and you don't have any, people do think we have control. We have say and we have things. But honestly, as a songwriter, you kind of just, you're, you're writing them and you're throwing them to the wind and, and just praying they, they, they find a home. Yeah. And when
0: you go and then, and then like when, when Kenny records, when the sun goes down, it becomes this massive hit. Do you go to the concert when he plays and does he. Do you go backstage, you get to shake his hand and stuff? Or does none of that, are you like living a life
1: where that's not a part of it? No, over the years, of course, Kenny became a dear friend. Yeah, of course, (laughs) now. Yeah, But yeah, I mean, and and I don't remember when that kind of started, probably really started with with, with when the sun goes down. Um, But, you know, Kenny's such a, cut such a, a lover of songwriters and such a kind guy that yes i mean he's brought me out on stage probably 20 times you know oh, just, that's awesome
0: that must feel so great to get that sort yeah, of
1: you know, go. he's like come on out and you'll go out and sing you know you know went out last night or something with him and it's it's always you know he's just that generous and that cool to like bring a songwriter out on stage with him hey guys this, this guy wrote it, he's gonna sing it for you kind of
0: thing yeah that seems that whole thing seems amazing i i um yeah i I just got a, I can't say who yet, but I just got a cut on someone's record, like a big, a big, a big, uh, very big country artist. Wow! And he, he said, to me, yeah, it's amazing, uh, it doesn't, but he, but he said to me, he's like, yeah, you'll come out uh, but but I know you know it's because I'm in a like um I know this person now for a long time he's like if I'm playing come out maybe you'll come out on stage and play uh w- you know one of our songs and I was just like no I'll just stand by the side and watch you play That's the song that'll be cool right here huh? that'll be perfectly um That's amazing cool. but but I have to imagine for 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 you when that started happening it, it must have just it must've felt incredible. Like when you wrote, I've heard you tell the story, but when you wrote, when the sun goes down, when you finally recorded it, cause I know you, with your wife was like, that's a good song. And you didn't think much of it when it was cut as a demo. Did you finally think to yourself or when you heard Kenny's record, were you like, Oh,
1: that's a hit. When Kenny did it well, you know, honestly, I, I thought it should have been the single of my record. Um, right. Looking back, um, I, I thought, man, we've got one here, you know, and then it, then we went with a different song, and, and the, the record deal ended. But when I heard Kenny's version, which was ten times bigger and ten times better than mine, honestly, uh, I knew immediately it was a smash. You know, I mean, it just sounded like a smash from the top. So,
0: and by then you'd had a, you'd had a, enough hits that you were you felt you were able to tell. Do you know when you? I'm 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 always wondering this. It's sort of when I started this podcast. That one of the things I I said like on the first episode was I've always been curious, like. The first time the four guys in REM strapped on their instruments and played together, did they look at each other and go, we're going to change the world? Or were they just like, well, that was a fun Thursday night, you know, <laughs> yeah, like because and and uh so like I've heard a little bit of you tell the story of Jesus take the wheel. But was there a moment in that process of writing that song, finishing the song uh here, you know, demoing it the first time, Carrie, you heard Carrie was going to cut it. Did you have a moment of knowing, oh, that's that's one of the different ones. That's one of the ones that's uh, gonna be something that I'm
1: gonna be remembered by, or was it just another day at the office for you? You know, it was completely just another day at the office. We thought, "Jesus, take the wheel," or I thought, "Jesus, take the wheel." Was such an outside concept. Can, you know now? People have heard that phrase and it seems kind of familiar. Yes. But I mean, even when Gordy Sampson, you know, brought that title up in the room. You know, I was, I literally just chuckled. I'm like, what is that? Jesus, Jesus, you know, his title is When Jesus Takes the Wheel, you know? And, right. And, you know, that song did, almost didn't make a demo session. It, it was, you know. Wait, what do you mean by that? So wait, this is amazing to me. So you guys, so then he says that title,
0: the three of you write that, that song together.
1: Yeah.
0: How long did it take to write, do you think?
1: Oh, it was like a typical day, like a good three, four hours, you know, it's not, right. you know, um, and but yeah, so the way I would work, especially back then, was you you know you'd write fifteen songs, twenty songs, and then you you kind of look at your pile, and you're going to go in with a band and spend real money, you know, getting these demoed. So you always kind of you, you narrow it down. You, you some some songs don't make the cut, you know. And Jesus, take the wheel. I remember it was the it barely made the cut. It was the fifth song on a five song demo session. And uh, a demo session of of
0: yours. So so how does it work? Does the writer who's had the most success decide which? Like basically. Could any, either of them just demo it if they wanted to? Or it was always going to be, well, if Brett wants to demo it, we'll demo it?
1: No, either of them could have uh, as well. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, back then, I guess I was the guy in charge of doing Sure, the, yeah. The three of us. And uh, so that's, you know, I just almost didn't make the, the demo session. And then, you know, people liked it. And all of a sudden, Carrie likes it. And and her producer really liked it, Mark Bright. But, you know, even at that, she she she, she was winning American Idol, but we still didn't know she was going to be. You know, and we didn't, we didn't, you know, she was, we didn't even know who she was when we wrote the song. And then when I had the moment with that song was, uh, she debuted that. And when we took the CMA awards to New York city in uh, in Oh five, I remember. And I I go to, I was at that show and I, you know, to to see her walk out on stage and crush it in Madison square garden. I was like, okay, we got, we got a hit.
0: (laughs) This is. (laughs) I remember seeing that performance. I wasn't in the garden, but I remember seeing that performance and, and yeah, it's an incredible thing. Um, but you, uh, you demoed the guitar. So you did a work tape, right? The first thing is the work tape that you okay. guys would have done, uh-huh. just a guitar vocal. And was it was it a woman in the room, or was it three guys who wrote that? song? No, it's Hillary right.
1: Lindsay. Is you right. know so Hillary-, did Hillary
0: sing the demo and of the work tape,
1: or did you sing the work tape? Uh, Hillary did. Hillary and, and Hillary sang the demo as well. I mean, Hillary is is right. the most successful female songwriter in national history now. Um, a lot of people don't know that about her, but she is. And, uh, you know, just strictly songwriter. And, uh, you know, she's just stupid talented. So when she sings a demo, it's it, it matters. <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: So she sang the work tape, though, and then you showed that to your publisher and, and you had it. And, and it wasn't
1: obvious to any of you that that's the one. Well, and back then I wouldn't even talk to a publisher about that. It was just, it was just literally our decision whether we demoed the song. Oh, so
0: it. you wouldn't show the publisher your work tapes necessarily back
1: no, then? I, I no, I never played work tapes for publishers. I just, I, I, I never wanted to hear it for them. It just wasn't my style, you know? Even and,
0: still? You know, even even to this day, you don't?
1: Do what? No, I don't. And I'm, I mean, I have a publishing company for the last 15 years. Right. And, you know, and, and I have writers that I love hearing their work tapes, you know, but I've just never been one that really, I like. I, I, I want whatever I present to whoever to always be polished, you know? That's just yes. always kind of been- You want all.
0: to put your best foot forward with it. And and so that song, uh, when that song takes off the way that it did, then you say, so when you saw her perform it is when you realized, oh, this is, this is like, like that, this is one of those. Songs. We got we, we got a special something for sure. But not when you wrote it. That's fascinating, man. That's amazing. Not when you wrote it. You're somehow so in it or something that you can't see R- it from above.
1: R- writing's funny, and I think I think for me at least, having um, you know, I'm I don't know 3,500 songs into my songwriting career, probably at least, maybe maybe more than that. I mean, you you you've had those moments. At least I have had those moments. So many days where I thought I wrote a "Jesus Take the Wheel," or I thought I wrote a number <laughs> <I> one. <thought laughs> And nobody yes. cared or it just for whatever reason didn't find its way. You know, I mean, a lot of my favorite songs no one's ever heard that I've written, you know, because they're sitting on shelves somewhere. And so I think that's just you've had that experience so many times you sort of, you know, you kind of just almost get immune to like thinking, wow, this is really that special or this really isn't that special. Because sometimes it's also the ones that you didn't think anything of that turn into hits or the ones that, you know, you know, so it's just just a funny, funny funny business. No, it's weird. I
0: mean, sometimes you, I, I would say in my thing, sometimes I know very rarely,
1: Yeah.
0: but once in a while I'm like, okay. like I, I knew when Dave and I wrote the pilot to billions, which was yeah. just, we didn't have a deal or anything. We just wrote wow. it on spec, like the way you'd write a song just in a wow. room. But when we wrote it over months, you know, when we finished it, I was like, oh, I knew it was going to, that was one of the only times I'd say where I knew like, oh, right. that's life. that's a life-changing thing. I did. I had a very clear sense. I was like, people may not, I can't tell you if the audience is good, whatever, but I knew we would get to make a show out of it. And that's
1: so cool. Yeah. It's
0: rare, but I knew it. It was one of those things. So I just, uh, but it's, it's very rare. I'll, I'll, I, you know, um, all right. I want to get into you recording. You're making these, these EPs and stepping out as an artist again, but I want to transition to it from But But what is the best part of being, um, a triple a music row songwriter? You know, one of the most the guys whose calendar is always full and gets to kind of decide the ways he's living his life other than the money, which we'll accept the money's great. But so sort of what's the best part of that? But then what's unsatisfying about it or what's not enough about it that you had to go
1: uh, make these records? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, the, the, the best part about it is the community period. In my opinion, we are, we, yep. you know, we've been blessed to have lived in this town now for almost 30 years been in the business of you know and around the business to enough that i've been on the cma board for 18 years for instance so just to to, to have been a part of such a talented community for this long and and to de- developed lifelong friendships all over the place you know is is by far the best part of kind of getting to be one of the lucky ones that's really in it for a long time um what's not enough about it is and this this is this does transition is is, is that you what i really found That I was missed I was a couple of years ago when I decided to start making my own music it was just the, the, it well, and, and COVID has changed, it's kind of killed a lot of that for the yes. most, but, but it was just interaction with audiences. It was just, you know, you know, you, when you're a songwriter, you write a song and you never visit it again. I mean, it's not, you're not, you don't learn your songs, you don't sit around playing them for people. It, it doesn't, doesn't get visited again. It's gone. It's in the ether now and it's, on a, you know on a recording somewhere, and either it gets yeah. recorded or a dozen, and you moved on to today's song. You know, I wrote one, you know, I finished writing it five minutes before our interview today. You know? Right. So, so you're on to the next the next song, and I really miss just just you know enjoying music with other people, other than two people in a room. You know, and so that's kind of what. And then you know, and it's not what's interesting too is I've, I you know I've also been around. The business long enough to know that i don't want to be famous really famous i think being really famous is really hard you know yes it is yep but that you also do kind of there's there's still an element when i go see some you know big great artists you know and they, they're singing my song there's still an element that gets a you know i think that i don't think that ever quite leaves you that you're like man it'd be fun to, <laughs> it'd be fun yeah. being right now now yeah. the other 23 hours of the day suck but that hour he's on stage is pretty cool you know Yes. So I just and from so the way I the reason I wanted to make some music was is twofold. Um, you know, I, first of all, I don't think my kids even know that I sing, you know, I mean, it's, it's like I said, I'm not a person who sings around the house. You know, they know what I do for a living, obviously. But but, you know, I'm not even sure they know what I sound like, what my real voice is like. And I was just like, you know, I want to make some music for me. And because I want to, you know, I want to strip everything down and I want to be a 15 year old kid with a guitar who's just making stuff up that he likes, you know. I mean, and I, you know, we can do that now. You know, you don't have to have a record deal to put music out. You don't have to, right. You have to be, you know, you don't have to find with RCA Records and put $2 million behind it. Like, you know, what
0: they and, and you can let your influences. Show. I mean, for me, I hear Levon Helm and Little Feet and Daryl Hall and Mark Cohn and Soul Music and tri- I mean, I hear all this stuff in there that. I wouldn't necessarily have known was in there from knowing your hit songs.
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of what I kind of wanted. I, I want to continue to do, you know, it's just is is kind of make music that is me, you know, and I think that's something I never figured out as a country artist, honestly. And that's part of why I think that's partly why I didn't work as a country artist, because it probably wasn't authentic. You know what I'm saying? And right. I, that, you know, I just think I just wanted to make some authentic music that I love that At least, you know, hopefully some other people will love it too. But if they don't, that's okay too. I just, you know, I just needed to and need to continue to do that. And hopefully the the, the ultimate goal was to be able to play a bunch of shows with horns and all that good stuff. Right. Hopefully it's it's coming. But this was going to be the year for that. And so COVID shut that
0: down. Well, it can still happen. I mean, what's interesting is uh, as you're talking about it, it, in a way you probably weren't ready to do this until you felt comfortable and, you know, really do it until you were – I always think like one of the biggest battles in life is to get to the place where you're just comfortable in your own skin. Like you're just comfortable being the person that you are. You Absolutely. still always want to improve and be kinder and better, all that stuff. But you know what I mean? Like where it's just like, all right, I accept this is this is who Brett James is. You know, this is for me. This is who I am. Sure. And in a way, as an artist, like getting to that place is really important, right? And it's different than, than getting into character to write a song that Chris Stapleton might sing or whoever might sing right. uh, is getting to just be like, all right, well, this is, this is who I am and right. I'm going to present it to you and you're either going to dig it or you're not, but I'll feel like I've put it out there and I, it feels listening to tell the people and I am now that that's what's going on.
1: Well, thank you very much. Cause yeah, I, I, it, it is that for me. And it's, it's, uh, those are the kind of songs that I, I like singing and I like writing, you know, you know, like doing it on my own, make it, you know, writing them by myself, stuff like that. And, it is. I think that's part of uh, maybe the one of the beauties of being our age, Brian, is that you, yeah. you you've had enough time to kind of kind of get a little more comfortable in your skin and just kind of go, you know, let's do let's do what we love and, and do it the best we can. Maybe.
0: Well, that is a perfect place to end on. Let's do what we love and do it the best we can. I think is really. Uh, Really awesome, man! Your uh, your story is so inspiring, and, and your work is so great. And uh, I really appreciate you spending the time. The world lost a, a smart and caring doctor, but they got a, a whole bunch of songs. And I think the trade off was uh, was worth it. Uh, Brett, where can people? Where are you online? Are you, I think you're on Instagram, right? I think I, I just followed you on
1: Instagram. Yeah, Brett James songs on Instagram, uh, and that's about it. I mean, I've got a YouTube channel, stuff like that. But uh, and then you know, so, EPs are out on, on Spotify and, and all that good stuff too.
0: All right, when well, everybody, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter or on Instagram and uh, uh, check out Brett's music. You know, go there's what's fun to do on Spotify, I think, is to go listen to sort of like or on Tidal, wherever. Tidal's great at this. They collect the songwriter stuff. So where you can just go, I want to listen up Brett James songs, just songs he's written. And you'll be blown away by just how many of these songs, you know, and have meant something to you. But then go listen to his own, his own records, the two recent EPs, because they really fill out the picture and, and, and give you who this guy is. And it's, I think, really going to be worth your time. Brett James, thank you so much uh, for being here. And everybody, I'll see you next time.